One of the wildest requests I've ever had was when I was working for this boutique finance firm and my boss asked me to travel to Denmark with his wife and children in his place. Welcome to Inside the Real Job with me, your host, Yenfu Chen. Get ready to explore the world of diverse careers while fascinating stories await. We'll delve into the pros and cons while witnessing ever-evolving industries. Join me as we connect with individuals from all walks of life, unveiling their secrets and navigating the dynamic world of work. Let's embark on this journey into the realm of real jobs. So do you classify yourself as a personal assistant or an executive assistant? My current title is personal assistant, but I don't know whether I would say I classify myself as a personal assistant or an executive assistant because I think that they are almost interchangeable terms a lot of the time. I think executive assistant is probably the more modern version of the title. And, but it can mean, both of them can mean different things depending on the industry you're working in, depending on the organization you're working in. For example, at the moment in my current role, executive assistant is reserved for the people that are supporting the most senior executives. So it sort of denotes seniority in the organization and a personal assistant is sort of the level below that. So if you're supporting middle management, you would be a personal assistant. And then underneath that, you would be like a team assistant or a team coordinator, but that's not necessarily the case in other organizations. Some organizations will consider an executive assistant to be someone that supports a number of executives. It has a connotation which means you do less personal work, whereas a personal assistant, it's more of an intimate relationship that you would have with that one individual. And you might do things such as buy their lunch, organize their dry cleaning, arrange daycare for their children, which I've, I've definitely done in the past. And so when I've worked for politicians, it's definitely been more of a personal assistant role where I have done a lot of those personal things as well as the work things. Okay. Whereas looking for a big financial institution like I am now, it's less common for an assistant to do that sort of stuff for their boss and they would be doing more very much office-based things and anything to do with their work life, but really nothing to do with their personal life. Okay, mm. so it really depends on the industry. Yes. You've been through a couple of industries. Yes. So why don't you tell the listeners how you got into being a personal assistant or executive assistant? Well, it wasn't really ever my plan. <laughs> I'm guessing that's probably what a lot of people would say about their careers. I, I started out as a receptionist, actually, for a non-profit organization, for an organization that supports people with disabilities. And I was doing that part-time while I was at uni. I was doing a business degree and I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to end up at the end of that degree. And I thought, well, you know, working in a small not-for-profit, but still a business will give me some good experience. So I did that, finished my degree, and then I had a few years experience as a receptionist. And I started looking for jobs in marketing because I majored in marketing. I had a lot of trouble because I was living in Newcastle, a smaller town, I guess, not Sydney, where you have lots more options work-wise. Couldn't find myself a marketing role. So I sort of kept doing different types of admin roles. So then I moved into a role which was actually in a psychiatric hospital as a finance assistant. So it was sort of specific to finance, but it was still a general admin role. And before I knew it, I'd been doing that for a few years and I I really wanted to travel. 
So I had this idea that I'd, I'd go and live overseas and try and get a marketing job when I get overseas and see how I go with that. And again, I had trouble getting a marketing role because I didn't really have any experience in that. But it was really easy for me to get temp roles doing different types of admin work. So I had quite a few stints with a few different charities because I had that nonprofit background. And then I also I ended up getting a role in like a government organization. And I stayed in that for a while. And then I moved back to Australia, decided, okay, I'm going to move to Sydney. I'm going to move away. I'm going to move into the big smoke and I'm going to really give this career a go. I'm going to go find myself a marketing job come hell or high water. And I did. I actually finally did. It took me a couple of months and I found this marketing job and I'd applied for all sorts of things. And it was very much an entry-level role, again, working for a really small business, a digital marketing company. I was about a month or so into the role and I got a call from one of my contacts within the government. He basically said to me, hey, Joe, have you got a job? And I said, yeah, I do actually. And he's like, oh, that's a shame. He goes, Deputy Premier needs an assistant. And he said- really important. Well, it was a bit of a shock because I didn't realise that this man was that close to the ministerial officers, but he was in charge of staffing those effectively. So he said, do you want to meet him? He'd really like to meet you. It was sort of an offer I couldn't refuse. So I actually met with his chief of staff and she was lovely. And then she said, John would like to meet me. So it was it was John at the time, who was the deputy premier. So I met with John and he was also really lovely and they offered me the job working with him straight away. Oh, and then I was really, there was a sort of a 48 hour period in my life where I was so torn because I thought I finally got this marketing job, which I've been wanting for so long, but I'm literally starting at the bottom and I'm now being given this opportunity to step into EA role. You know, once in a lifetime opportunity to work for a politician. Yeah, I can see the attractiveness to it. Yeah, yeah. and the salary was let's just say significantly more. <laughs> yeah. Than a junior marketing Than person. Than a junior marketing <laughs> assistant. So I ended up taking the leap of faith and I left the marketing role. They weren't very happy with me. But I tried to explain to them this opportunity doesn't just come along all mm. the time. So I, I did a best decision I've ever made. It was such an experience working in politics and John himself, a great guy, and he had an excellent team. So then I worked with him for a few years and then he resigned from politics and I ended up being lucky enough to land a job with Christina, who at the time was the Minister for Planning. And I happened to be working with her as her personal assistant when she became the Premier. Wow. You've been super busy. Oh, I've never experienced anything like it. And we, we were effectively told on the day that she became the Premier. And the way that it works in ministerial offices is you've got this special type of contract where you're only employed by the minister for as long as they are in that same role. So we knew that at the end of the day, if Christina was successful in becoming the Premier, that we would potentially be working for the Premier or we would lose our jobs. Right. Because officially she would no longer have been the Minister for Planning, which means officially her office is dissolved and then she has 
the option of asking certain people to come and work for her as the premier or officially recruiting them, but there's not really any strict guidelines around that. So it was really scary. Yeah, I bet. But as as the person that was managing her diary at the time, obviously I was kind of in a critical role because the next few days and weeks and months especially were really full on. She had to get to all the right people and all the right places. And so that's why midnight, the day of her becoming the premier, there was a small group of us that were sitting there in this office and being told, this is going to be your life now. She's become the premier. Say goodbye to your personal life. (laughs) We were pretty much told that. And was it true? It was true. It was very, very true. So I think I I left the office at like 3 a.m. that morning and maybe had a couple of hours sleep, was back in the office at like 7 a.m. And it sort of continued on from there. Like her life was turned upside down, which meant that all of our lives were turned upside down. Well, they say politicians' jobs 24-7, right? It is definitely true. And people don't think about the team behind them. No, they don't. So I sort of found myself in a unique position, which was not of my doing. It sort of, I landed there by accident, which was great. And it was also terrifying. There was a lot of pressure to make sure that her life went smoothly. Can we quickly go back to when your network or connection said, hey, there's this role for you. Why do you think that person came to you? Is it some sort of skill or maybe your attribute towards working with individuals? Honestly, probably more the latter. The reason I met him is because when I was working for that government agency in England, they had links to the New South Wales government. There was one person in particular that travelled regularly to New South Wales and he knew that I was from New South Wales. So he and I would have chats in the kitchen, literally. And we talk about Sydney and he was just a really nice guy. When he found out that I was moving back to Australia, he said, oh, look, if you want a job when you get back to Sydney, call this guy because he's the person I go to visit when I go to Sydney. And he gave me his number. And I thought, okay, well, I've got nothing to lose here. So I literally rang him when I got back to Australia and just said, hi, Brad. I worked with David back in in England and he gave me your number. And this is my background. I'm, I'm an executive assistant. He just said, yeah, just email me your CV. Look, we don't have anything going at the moment, but I'll keep you in mind if anything comes up. He actually had said to me as well, would you be able to come in and just meet me in person one day? Not that there's an official role going, but just so I get an idea of about you and your background. So I went in and met him and we got on really well. It turns out I didn't realise at the time that he's the guy that worked for the Premier's department and he was the one that staffed all the ministerial offices. And it was all really exciting even going in to meet Brad that day and thinking, wow, this is where all the ministers work. I was so young. Like I was, I think I was about 25 at this time. And that was like a, a really great life experience. But I think it came down to the fact that I had met him and he knew that I had some background in government, but he also had said to me, John, who was the deputy premier at the time, he said, his job's pretty hard. He goes to cabinet meetings and they're full on And he just needs someone to go and grab him a coffee sometimes, to listen to him, to smile at him, because there's a lot of people that just don't do that. His day is hard. And I think he saw that I'm the sort of person that would do that. And and I think this sort of applies with a lot of EA and PA roles. There's a lot in the rapport that you have with your boss. And when I met John in person, I think he just connected with me and I connected with him. And it was just like instantly we felt comfortable and he took a punt on me effectively. Like I didn't really have that much experience, but I was willing to work hard and I was 
not really politically driven, which is, I think, though, it helped me because he was surrounded by people that are talking and living and breathing politics and he just needed a human to be there for him. And I did find that that happened with him and I a lot. One part of my job was making sure that he signed all the correspondence. Basically, every single letter that anyone wrote to the Minister for Transport would have to go through the Department for Transport. What would happen is there was a whole area in the Department of Transport where they would receive the correspondence and then they would type up a a response on behalf of the Premier. They'd print out a letter and they'd have his signature block at the bottom, but he actually had to physically sign every single one of those letters and he had to proofread every single one of those letters because it had his name on it. I'm not sure whether they still do it that way now because we have electronic signatures, but Literally, he would get a pile of, say, 50 letters a day and he'd have to keep on top of it because if you had a day where he didn't sign his correspondence for the day, he'd fall so far behind. So part of my job was keeping on top of that and making sure that he got his signatures in. And despite everything else that he had to do that day, one of the priorities was for him to make sure he got his correspondence signed. But that involved me sitting at a table with him and saying, okay, here's your pile of letters. Go through them one by one. And he'd often do that and sit and just chat to me. And he said to me, our chats are the highlight of my day sometimes. And he would tell me about his family. You know, he was married, he had kids. I think it was a bit of time out for him because his days were so full on. And I know we haven't finished about your journey yet, (laughs) but I wanted to know that connection. Do you know straight away, like, have you gone for roles or been offered roles before and you've actually met the person that you were going to support and you go, yeah, this doesn't seem right? There has been a couple of times where that's happened. Right. In my opinion is you sort of have to go with your gut. It's almost like dating. (laughs) It's like you get a feeling about a person and you only have a short period of time to really make a call and make a judgment. So every little thing counts. But sometimes you just meet someone and it works you know, and you don't have to try very hard. Other times you'll have a meeting with them and you'll be like, this is not an easy flow of conversation or this person's demeanour is sort of very different to mine and we're not really connecting. I think it's really important you take that on board. And there's been a couple of times where I've had interviews with people and I've thought this person seems extremely stressed and overwhelmed and I think I'd be getting myself in for a lot if I took this role on. So you can sort of read between the lines with that stuff. There's also been times, though, when I've I've applied for a role and I've met the person I'd be supporting and that person I got on with really well. And then they've said to me, I want you to meet someone from my team who you'll be working with pretty closely as a second round interview. And I've met that second person and been like, whoa, okay, (laughs) I don't think I'm going to gel with that person. So I've really made the call based on that as well. I think more than most roles, it really helps if you like the person that you're supporting because a lot of the time you're going to have to put aside your own personal comfort and your own, sometimes your own personal needs and your own personal wants to prioritize theirs. Can you give us an example when you might have done that? One example that springs to mind instantly is when I was working for Christina when she was the premier and she had back-to-back meetings and she had a, a driver that would drive her around the city to where she needed to be. And I remember getting a call from one of her advisors. So everywhere she went, she would be accompanied by an advisor. And this used to happen on a regular basis. One of the advisors would call me and say, we're on our way back to the office. She'll come into the office and then she'll have to go again. Can you have some food ready for her for lunch? She hasn't eaten. And I would say, okay. And there wouldn't even be a chance for me to say, what does she want? 
I literally had a list of things that she liked to eat and I would just go downstairs and I would buy three different things that I knew that she would like, sushi, a sandwich or a salad. And because I thought, I don't know what she feels like or what she's going to want. So I would then, that ready for her to go, sitting there on her table so that when she walked in the office, she could just choose which one she wanted and whichever one she didn't want, I would eat (laughs) for my lunch. And that's because otherwise I wouldn't have had time to go and get my own lunch. So I guess you sort of always having to be two steps ahead and be thinking about what your boss would want in any given moment. And again, like I said, if you really like that person, it makes it a lot easier because you want them to be happy. You want them to be comfortable. There's almost a nurturing sort of element to the role. It can make all the difference. Okay. Mm. Nice one. Mm. Can we continue on since you've been talking about Christina? Yeah. How long were you with her and what happened next? So I ended up only being with her for about three months because there was no exaggeration to the line that we were told on the first night she became the premier. My life went out the window. (laughs) I was working six to seven days a week. It was very, very long hours and... I was exhausted and I think it was a really hard decision again in my career as to what to do because I was told you kind of have a choice to take a voluntary redundancy at this point or if you don't do that, you get to stay as her secretary. It was actually the title is private secretary once you're the premier. So again, it was a really hard choice because it was, do I want to keep doing this or do I look for something else and step away from this world? When you're working at that level of politics, even as a support staff member, you have to absolutely love it and you have to love the politics. For me, as you know from my story, that was never the case for me. I kind of fell into that world and made the most of it and it was a fabulous life experience, but everyone around me was They were political beings and that was what got them up in the morning was this drive to be in politics and I I didn't have that. So I stepped away and I slept for about a week, I reckon. (laughs) I bet you did, yeah. first week. I would have slept for a month probably. (laughs) I was exhausted. Really grateful for the experience. I then stepped into the financial services industry. I got a job working for a big investment bank. And then from there, I got another job working for a professional services firm. And then back to government again, Treasury Corporation, which is a government agency, still finance. And then pretty much since then, I've been in various financial services roles. And I've been here for about five years in this organization, but different roles. So that's how I've ended up where I am. That's great. Mm. Thank you for sharing. No worries. And you talk about where you've got to go out and get lunch. Mm. What has been one of the weirdest things that you've had been asked to do? One of the wildest requests I've ever had was when I was working for this boutique finance firm and my boss asked me to travel to Denmark with his wife and children in his place because he was supposed to be going with them all. They were going on a family trip to Denmark for Christmas. He was basically being tied up with work. So he said, I'm going to be about two days late over there. But meanwhile, I know that my wife's going to be really upset with me because we've got three boys under the age of five and she's going to be on a long haul flight from Sydney to Denmark without the assistance of her husband. So I want you to go on the flight with her 
Holy to help moly. out with the boys. Did you do it? I didn't. Number one, it wasn't really possible. Obviously, I had plans myself for my own Christmas. <laughs> but again, it's sort of like your plans are secondary when you're working for someone, especially someone like this particular man who's very demanding. I got on the phone to the travel agent and said, can this be done? We've already booked him on this flight and the flight flies out a few days before Christmas. Can you actually put me on the flight instead of him? And the travel agent said to me, no, effectively, we can't just change the name on the ticket and you need to be seated right next to the wife and kids to be able to support them, right? You can't be sitting in another area of the plane. You need to be sitting in that seat. She said, the only way we can do this is to release his ticket back into the market and hope that we can then get it back. But she said that there are no seats left on this flight. And it's a few days before Christmas. There'll be a huge list of people that are looking for a seat on this flight. So there's no guarantee that we will be able to get that seat back if we release it. It's really risky. And she said also it will cost us around $10,000 because, again, of the time of year and the demand. So I thought, okay, well, that's going to be prohibitive. That's sort of a cost and that's sort of a risk. So I said, let me talk to him about it. So I ended up just having, it was it was a really hard conversation, but I, I ended up having the conversation with him and said, the other thing is, I don't want to do this, which he did take on board begrudgingly. Sure. <laughs> he was really upset with me. He actually did have a nanny. And so I think he paid for the nanny to go instead of me. Yeah, right. And when you said no, did that put you in a place where you feel more comfortable saying no to your boss or your future boss? Yeah, I think you have to be able to being really strong on your boundaries because in this sort of a role, you can so easily get caught up in trying to please your boss so much to it's to the detriment of yourself. And it's hard to find that line. It's always a challenge. And I've also learned it makes a difference if you're working for someone that's more reasonable. And unfortunately, that's one of the downsides of this sort of a role as well. A lot of people that are entitled to this sort of support are really high-powered executives and they've been able to get to those positions because they have certain personalities. The majority of the time, people have very high expectations of anyone that's assisting them. And have you built your resilience over time? Or is that something that you had or is it something you need? I think it definitely helps if you naturally have that. And I've seen, I've worked with EAs and PAs that have that naturally. And I admire that when I see that. But I do wonder whether that's ever worked to their detriment. I think I used to think that it did and that if you're too tough, then you won't necessarily be offered the sorts of roles or be able to keep the sorts of roles that you want. But I think as I've gotten older and a bit more mature, I've realised that there are ways of doing that. You can be assertive without being aggressive. So it's about finding that balance. But in answer to your question, I think it helps if you naturally have that tendency already, a bit of self-preservation. Yeah. Whilst also being quite giving with your time and sort of generous in some ways. Yeah. And throughout your years, has the role changed a lot? Can you tell us what a typical day looked like 10 years ago? Was it about more being organized? And compared to now, do you have to prepare documents and PowerPoints? I think technology has definitely changed the role quite a bit. I remember this is more than 10 years ago, but my dad actually used to be an executive himself and he always had an assistant throughout his 
working life. He's retired now. But he talks about a time when his assistants would literally have this huge like paper diary and they'd write in it in pencil. And so his diary was literally like this big book, which to me, that's just so funny because I spend most of my life in Outlook, which is obviously an electronic system. And like the social world has changed in the last 10 years, you can make plans with someone, but they could change potentially right up until just before the event is about to happen. And I think that's a huge difference in executive life. And then as a result, executive or personal assistance lives from years ago, because years ago you would you would know exactly what the week is going to look like and you could plan accordingly. The way things are now, my boss's day can change five or six times throughout the day. Meetings are cancelled at the last minute. Meetings are moved at the last minute. We're much more in a world where things are a movable feast. And technology has helped with that. If we didn't have calendars in Outlook, we wouldn't be able to change things around so easily. I mean, even when I was working with the Premier, a lot of the time meetings would be set up over the phone. Whereas these days, it's very rare for me to talk on the phone. I would set a lot more meetings up via email or via instant message than, than I would have back in the day. The other thing is there's a lot of audiovisual technology that you sort of have to be across. So in meeting rooms and things, we're all using Teams or Skype. And we have to have some sort of technical background with that because often the EA or the PA is the one that's looked at to make sure that that stuff works, the logistics of things work. Rather than going, okay, I need to allow time for you to walk from one office to another, it's I need to allow time to set up the logistics in a meeting room to make sure that you can dial into a meeting rather than allow you time to walk to a meeting, which is what it used to be. Right. What else does your day look like? It depends again on the role. So, and it depends on the executive. It depends on the industry. I do a lot of travel management. My current boss doesn't live in Sydney, which is where I live and most of her team live. She lives in Melbourne. So I am constantly booking travel for her back and forth from here and there. I process expenses, which is another pretty standard thing in most EA or PA roles. Um, arrange events, arrange team offsites, arrange social events for the team. I coordinate those as well for the broader business area, often with other EAs and PAs. So, for example, we had a Melbourne Cup celebration the other day. We were catering for 100 people across the business. Things like that are a real group effort. I guess there's a bit of editing and drafting of emails of board papers or papers that go to the leadership teams or PowerPoint presentations that your boss might be giving externally. I think you have to be across the brand a little bit, if you can, of the organization you're working for, because often your boss doesn't have time to be focusing on the content of a document. But if it's going externally, you need to make sure it looks right and that it's in line with the brand that they're representing. Also organizing approvals. In my current role, there's a lot of systems accesses that need to be approved by my boss. She's got about 500 staff underneath her. So a lot of the time there will be systems that they need requesting access to. Their direct manager might request access on their behalf and then it will need to escalate to my boss to be approved at her level. So it's getting context of each request and then making sure that, that she has all the information she needs to be able to make the call about approving or rejecting something. Do you have to make decisions at times on their behalf? Because 
you do hear that people say EAs and PAs, they're the real boss because <laughs> they sometimes make the decisions. They do. I guess so. I, it's interesting because I think some people see the EAs and the PAs as the gatekeepers. Definitely think there's an element of that. Depends, again, on the relationship you have with your boss and how much they trust you with their time. At the moment, I think I have a fair bit of ability to make decisions about my boss's time and how she spends it because I know what her priorities are. She and I have a really good communication flow. So I am able to understand what's more important, be able to make calls on their behalf. But in other roles, I've worked for people who have said to me, do not accept anything on my behalf, do not reject anything on my behalf. So in those cases, it's sort of you're not actually making the decisions, you're just executing the decisions. And there's everything in between. I know of other EAs, PAs who don't have access to their boss's emails, for example, and I think that's because that particular executive isn't comfortable giving over control of that sort of thing generally confidential information that be going into their inboxes, which they might not be comfortable sharing with their assistant. It's very variable depending on who you are and who your boss is and what their role is and your relationship to them and how much trust there is. There's got to be some form of trust for you to be able to be making decisions on their behalf. Totally. And with the trust, depending who you work with, you're exposed to a lot more information than your average staff person in that business or in that team. Yes. So how do you go about holding that information? Is it just something that is just part of the job? Because I'm sure when you're talking to people or when you're talking on behalf of your boss, you know certain things that that person doesn't. It could be really saucy information, right? <laughs> that you just want to tell the whole world, but you can't. Yes, definitely. Like there are definite moments like that. And what's often hard is when you know about some information that could affect maybe one of your colleagues who's a friend of yours, you know something about their future that they don't. It's hard sometimes, but that's when you have to remind yourself of the importance of the confidentiality. And you're sort of in a privileged position. You've been given access to information that others aren't. And you jeopardize your position by betraying that trust with your boss by not holding that to yourself. I guess it's a tricky one. And almost every interview I've ever been to, that's a question that gets asked. To me, it's funny that it is asked because I just think it sort of goes without saying that if you're in this sort of a role, you have to be someone that is able to keep information to themselves, no matter how juicy. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's another example of where you have to put your boss's needs or the company's needs before your own personal needs. You know, personally, you might want to share this excellent piece of gossip, but you have to control yourself and not do that because that's not in the best interests of the person you're supporting and they've got to come first all the time. It's quite a selfless role, isn't it? I think it is a lot of the time. It's funny, I, I'm not a mum. But I talk to some of my friends who are mums who are also EAs or PAs and I say to them, I just feel like this would be good training for someone to be a mum. Right? <laughs> what do they say? <laughs> some of them have agreed with me because I think to be a good EA or PA, people talk about when they're a mum, they say you never switch off and you're constantly thinking of your children before yourself. You come after the kids. And as an EA or a PA, I feel like you're kind of doing the same, although it's just within, hopefully, within your work hours. Um, so it's to a lesser extent. At least you get a break, whereas a lot of moms don't. But I think it's a similar thing. You sort of 
thinking two steps ahead about what they're going to need and trying to give them that. That's where you can add value. And that's when I've been given the most positive feedback in the past is when you've been able to achieve that and sort of predict what they want and you give it to them before they even have to ask for it. Okay. Mm. And how do you think the role of an EA or PA is going to look like or change? What's it going to be like in five, ten years' time? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it could change quite significantly. We are already, where I'm working, trialling some virtual assistants. So they're people that are based in other countries even who are providing online assistance to some of our executives. So I wonder if that will become more prevalent. I question whether that can completely work because especially the event side of things, a lot of physical things that need to happen in an office which obviously a virtual assistant can't do. But I wonder if maybe some of those things could be taken up by management in future. I think a lot of companies are also, there's been definitely a trend towards downsizing the EA or PA workforce. When I was working at a bank a few years ago, they reduced their PA and EA workforce by about 60%. And the way that they did it was they said anyone that's under a general manager level will no longer have assistance at all which was pretty dramatic. And I think there's a bit of a trend towards doing that. A lot of companies are wanting to save money. So that's how they're streamlining their PA or EA workforce. That'll be interesting to see in future whether that model works because the people and culture side of things would be really hard to execute without people at that level. I have also heard stories about the particular bank that I was at at the time where after they did that big cull of people, slowly they've started bringing them back in because people have found that a lot of the stuff that we do happens behind the scenes. It's not super obvious. We keep the wheels turning. We, I remember hearing a story about at this bank, they went to go and print something and there was no paper. There was no paper in the print room. And little things like that are the things that we do just make life work. I think they're the sorts of things that will be missed when they don't happen. But it's one of those things you don't know what you've got till it's gone almost. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in future with these sorts of roles and whether there will be less of them. I guess AI is the other thing, right, which would affect so many jobs and so many industries. Maybe AI would be able to do a lot of the work that we do. Yeah, interesting because some PAs or EAs would probably potentially do a lot of writing for mm-hmm. their boss. AI could do that. Absolutely. I think it will be missed based on our conversation is that human connection part. Yes. You know, I recall you saying, John, you know, always came and talked to you and sort of like vented and that human aspect. If it's all virtual, I can't see someone picking out the phone going, oh, I've had a bad day. Absolutely. It'd be yeah. hard to build rapport and in that trust. Definitely. And I think maybe we underestimate that to some extent. But other people that you might talk to that do my sort of work wouldn't see that as an important part of the role. But because of the experiences I've had, I think it's really important. Because executives would be potentially quite a lonely life. I mean, I'm not talking about their personal lives, but on a day-to-day basis, they're They're very much individual creatures. They're running around between meetings and not having two seconds to themselves to just have a chat with someone or so their assistant can potentially be that person because they're for them and they're available to talk to them whenever they want someone to talk to, I guess. Yeah. So you can potentially offer that. And they have to keep a lot of stuff confidential in their roles. They can't share a lot, even with their colleagues a lot of the time, like their peers, but they might be able to share some of that with their assistant. 
because it's it's a safe space. So it's kind of a unique role in that respect. Yeah, definitely. Mm. What's the best part about your role as a personal assistant? There's the satisfaction that I get my role is knowing that I've made a busy person's life easier. And when you walk away at the end of the day and you go, I think that I made today run more smoothly for my boss. There's some satisfaction in that. And especially, again, it comes back to if you, if you have a good relationship with that person, you want them to succeed and you feel like you're almost the wind beneath their wings a lot of the time. You can do all the work behind the scenes to make them look good and to make them successful. A lot of that has to do with themselves, but you can really contribute to that and you can feel proud that part of their success owes to your assistance. Yeah, okay. Mm. And I usually end with a question, but you've gone into it already. To be successful in this role or if you want to be a personal assistant or Mm. an EA, some of the qualities that you mentioned is you've got to be obviously build a lot of trust, connect, mm-hmm. you've got to be reliable, organised. What else do you need if you want to go down this path? You have to be a team player is another thing, which I probably haven't touched on. You have to be able to see the people that report to your boss as your team and know that any assistance you can provide to them, if they're running well and running smoothly, then your boss's life is going to be easier. So while you need to be very focused on your boss and what they need, you also need to be able to step back a little bit and see the bigger picture and help to facilitate that as well really important to use your network to get to know an organization and the ins and outs of, you know, if I have an IT issue, where am I going? And you need to have the IT guy on speed dial. That's going to make your life easier. It's going to make your boss's life easier. Finding those little shortcuts, that's pretty important. You have to have a bit of initiative to be able to seek that sort of stuff out and then a way of containing that information and being able to access it really easily that's pretty important you have to be willing to work hard because often you'll need to do that the pace can be very fast depending on who you're working for and which industry but a lot of my jobs have been very fast paced so you have to have a bit of energy and be willing to do the running around get your hands a bit dirty and adaptable by the sounds of it as well yes of constant change that can happen within the day absolutely if you get easily frazzled by things changing you're not going to last very long so i guess there is an element of resilience right rolling with the punches and when something changes rather than freaking out you go okay yep this is fine what are we going to do about that and having that sort of problem solving mindset in that sense following a problem through to the end as well like not just going oh well this will sort this out now think about what you can do in the future to prevent that problem from occurring again Great. Thanks, Joe. That was most insightful. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Well, that was a fascinating chat with Joe. Things that really struck me was how selfless you have to be, very similar to a parent. You have to prioritize the person that you're supporting before yourself, or you have to be resilient as there's going to be some good days. And at times when there's those bad days, you will be relied on to help them get through those challenges of those days. Depending on the person you're supporting and the organization they're in, things change very quickly. So you have to be adaptable to change. 
And the other big key one is you have to build a very trustworthy relationship as you're gonna know a lot of information that other people don't. The person that you're supporting trusts you with all the information. It's a partnership where the both of you have to work well to ensure that the individual and the organization goals are met. I hope you really enjoyed that episode and thanks for tuning in and remember make today a good news day.